nation is moving toward uh, two societies, one white, one black, separate and unequal. That was the voice of former U.S. Senator Fred Harris, the only living member of the Kerner Commission, talking with Soledad O'Brien in 2017. Harris was reciting one of the most famous lines, of course, from the Kerner Commission report itself. Quote, the nation is moving toward two societies, one white, one black, separate and unequal. He was recalling those words 50 years after the commission was created by President Lyndon B. Johnson to answer three questions about racial uprisings in cities like Detroit and Newark and Los Angeles and Chicago. The first question was, what happened? The second was, why did it happen? And the third and perhaps most important was, what can be done to prevent it from happening again and again. Now, think for a second about how haunting that last question, what can be done to prevent it from happening again and again, is here in 2021. After the murder of George Floyd at the hands of a police officer in Minneapolis and the worldwide protests and uprisings that followed, it really feels sometimes like not much has changed. In many ways, it feels like perhaps things have gotten worse. We explored the Kerner Commission report pretty extensively on this show and on WDET with our Detroit Journalism Cooperative Partners a couple years ago, leading up to that 50th anniversary of the report. But it feels like so much has happened in just those two or three years that makes this a perfect time to explore the Kerner Commission report again, and look at its findings. And that's exactly what our guest for this hour is doing in a reissued and condensed version of the report that includes his own illuminating introduction and re-examines all of the things in the Kerner Commission report in a modern context. It considers the murder of George Floyd and the other deep racial injustices that we've seen unfold in front of us in just the last several years. Jelani Cobb is a staff writer for The New Yorker. He is a professor of journalism at Columbia University, and he is the editor of the new book, The Essential Kerner Commission Report. And he joins us to talk about what happened 50 years ago, what's happened in the interim, and where we are today. Jelani Cobb, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. So uh, let's start here. First of all, uh, I want to I note that you are, of course, in New York, uh, and we are sitting here in Detroit watching on uh, cable news mostly uh, the devastation that uh, you guys are experiencing there because of the hurricane and because of our problems with infrastructure. So uh, I'm, I'm glad you're able to join us, and I hope that things uh, are not too, too, too crazy. Uh, we are, of course, pretty familiar with severe weather and infrastructure failure here in Detroit uh, as well. Um, but but let's start the conversation here. For people who aren't terribly familiar with the Kerner Commission and what it was responding to in the late 1960s, let's bring them up to speed. Where, where were we then? Yeah, um, so first, thank you for having me. And uh, you know, it is an irony that we're dealing with what's essentially an infrastructure crisis in New York, mm-hmm. uh, which 
nearly prevented this interview, as you, as right, you know, we're scrambling right. <laughs> because uh, the teachers at my daughter's school couldn't get to the building, um, you know, which, you know, meant there had to be last minute uh, rearrangements and planning and lots of households and families across the city are doing that. Uh, and this is not an isolated concern. You know, see cities across the country uh, are having to deal with these kinds of issues, which relates back to the questions of of what we have and what we have not invested in our cities. And that was the question that was before uh, the Kerner Commission in 1967, 1968. Uh, they were responding to, uh, you know, the first real major urban crisis uh, in, you know, the mid second, third of the 20th century. Uh, and that had been that for decades, there had been declining uh, white populations, declining uh, tax bases, uh, declining uh, industrialization uh, and, and employment uh, and all these things. And the population that had been left behind in the cities was largely black and brown. And a number of high profile uh, incidents that they refer to in, in rather sanitized bureaucratic language. They call them uh, civil disturbances. Mm -hmm. You know, other, other people <laughs> call them riots. Some people call them rebellions, uh, uprisings, etc. cetera. Uh, um, but a number of these occasions uh, took place in 1964, 1965, uh, 1966, into 1967. And uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, as president, was quite frankly frustrated and wanted the commission, appointed a commission that would try to get to the bottom of what was happening. Hmm. And uh, why is now, I guess, a good reason to be looking back at the Kerner Commission in that era? Um, there was a lot of attention paid to this report a couple of years ago when it turned 50. But w when I think of the things that have happened that should remind us of the warnings in the Kerner Commission report since that anniversary. I mean, it, it's almost as if uh, it equals what happened uh, in that in that first fifty years uh, after the exactly. report. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, I, I remember the fiftieth anniversary of this report well because I attended a discussion of the current report and its implications in Detroit. Uh, as a matter of fact, mm -hmm. and in the midst of that conversation, uh, we were talking about you know the continued relevance of the report. And, you know, some of the things that, you know, were very prescient that they had described and thought about. Uh, and, you know, this was very much a conversation among media, policy, uh, academic people. Mm -hmm. But in May of last year, Memorial Day of last year, we saw that exquisitely brutal video of the death of George Floyd. And... It wasn't simply the death of George Floyd or the extreme prejudice with which it was uh, carried out, but the fact that this was part of a series that, you know, these videos on the internet had become almost a genre, you know, the, the police uh, misuse of force mm -hmm. uh, that results in someone's death. And so looking at this and looking at the unrest in American cities, and, you know, the the scenes from the news that if you were to uh, take away the identifying aspects of it could have been from Detroit in 1967 or Newark in 1967 or, or Watts in 1965. 
Uh, and so in talking with uh, my co-editor, Matthew Gariglia, we just thought, like, you know, we really need to have another conversation about Kerner. Mm. Mm. So uh, I, I want to continue talking, of course, about now uh, and, and the things that kind of frame uh, this reexamination of Kerner. But but before we do that, I actually want to go back to before the events that led up to Kerner. And, and, and part of the reason I want to do that is because I know that uh, you spent a lot of time writing about uh, race and history in this in this country and sort of how we got from – uh, the end of slavery uh, to the, the the civil rights movement in the 1960s, but but spend just a little time talking about how this period is is stunning and frustrating, and I think people are able to see more of what uh, what what uh, creates this this separation, this division in America than they have before. But that it's the seeds for this uh, were planted a really long time ago, and we spent a long time as Americans um, living through uh, the, the times that 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 created all of this. Uh, this is sure. not just about the 1960s; it's about the 50s, it's about the 20s, uh, it's about uh, 1876, and other other dates that that really set the stage for the America we live in today. It absolutely does. I mean, we could go back as far as we want to go back in this conversation. But if we just uh, contained our discussion to the 20th century, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of the images that I show my students, um, you know, in class regularly uh, is a sign, a sign um, with a white woman. Uh, she's holding this placard that says we want white tenants in our white community. Mm-hmm. I know that sign. <laughs> I know that sign. And so, you know, you are familiar with where that sign is from. Mm-hmm. But I, when I give it to my students, I strip away all of the identifying details. And they think, oh, this is Mississippi. This is Tennessee. This is Alabama. This is, and then uh, when they find out that it's Detroit, <laughs> they're really shocked because they think of Detroit as a black city. But fundamentally, uh, you know, Detroit, uh, into the 1920s, it was overwhelmingly white. Into the 1930s, uh, overwhelmingly white. It's the Great Migration that begins to change that over very rapidly. The same thing that happens in St. Louis, uh, in Baltimore, uh, in cities that have black populations, uh, something of a black population prior to this, but their black populations increased dramatically uh, in this time period. And with it, you get the seeds of the conflict that we... Uh, see now that is uh, that Kerner was talking about in the 60s and that we're talking about now uh, where police are deployed mainly for the purposes of maintaining residential segregation of policing where people are in the cities and making sure uh, that black people and brown people are not uh, in the locales where white people are mm-hmm. uh, and you know you begin to see this uh, increase in uh, riots, urban riots, not just the kind of race riots that happened in the first 20 years of the 19th, 20th century, um, but, you know, these kinds of modern conflicts that we see in, in Harlem in 1935 over policing. Uh, in Detroit, in 1943, you know, where there's that, that incident in uh, Detroit that culminates uh, in a huge uh, riot mm-hmm. there. And that was one of the first uh, cases that Thurgood Marshall investigated. 
And that was, you know, the young Thurgood Marshall was sent to Detroit to examine what happened. And he said the police had essentially aided and abetted a white mob in pursuing and attacking black people in the city of Detroit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in, in 1943 in Harlem, again, same the same sort of circumstance. Uh, and so we can just go through and see how all these things are prior to the end of World War II. After the end of World War II, this really takes off because then we get the push for suburbanization. Um, The narrative that we hear in American cities about American cities is that the white population left after the riots of the 1960s. But that doesn't hold up. You know, in, in fact, when you look at the major American cities uh, and most of them, the black the white population decreases between 1940 and 1950. Uh, that's because after the war, people began to get opportunities in suburbia. Uh, people began to build highways. Uh, they created uh, segregated communities that were outside of cities. Uh, there was a hoarding of opportunity that turned cities uh, into a kind of reservoir of disaffected and forgotten people. Mm. And the things that we happen in the mid 60s that we see happen in the mid 60s are really a product of dynamics that that really take off in the mid forties, uh, and you know Richard Rothstein Rothstein's book uh, The Color of Law yeah. is great uh, on this, um, and also my my colleague Kianga uh, Yada Yamada Taylor her her work on this is also important, uh, and just talking about housing policy as one thing you could you could look at this in terms of healthcare policy in terms of education policy uh, every major institution that we have correlates in some way to these dynamics that we see of of forgetting about the cities and forgetting about the people who live in them yeah yeah uh, i'm talking with jelani cobb he's a staff writer for the new yorker a professor of journalism at columbia university and the editor of a new book the essential kerner commission report he's also written uh, an introduction uh, to that book. The book is uh, an attempt to, to kind of look back at uh, Kerner, uh, which was published in the late 1960s in response to the uprisings that we saw in cities like Detroit and Chicago and uh, Los Angeles during the 1960s. Uh, we're talking about how how present uh, all of the factors that are pointed out in the Kerner Commission report are in our lives Right now, uh, all of the things that we are still confronting about an America that is framed by division. Uh, There are two Americas, the Kerner uh, Commission report uh, warned. One black, one white, uh, separate and unequal. Uh, We'd love if you want to join the conversation as well. Tell us whether you think we are still headed in that direction as Americas, as Americans, uh, are we living in a society that is really divided into two, one black, one white, separate and unequal? And if you think that, uh, tell me what things you see, uh, what things you experience that suggest that that's true. Uh, we all witnessed the murder of George Floyd at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer last year and then saw Uh, the protests and other reactions it inspired. We also saw the backlash to those protests uh, and continued to live uh, with the things that uh, people who want to say that everything is already equal in America want to do to kind of push back against uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, Do you think that's a sign that we haven't gotten past where Kerner said we were 
in the late 1960s. Uh, also give us a call if you just don't agree with that framing. Uh, if you believe that uh, America is uh, a place of equality and that the sins of the past, the racial sins of the past, aren't with us uh, today and, and don't have much to do uh, with our lives. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Uh, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, and we'll try to work you into the conversation uh, that way. Uh, Jelani, we've already got people, of course, queuing up to talk about this. But before we get to them, uh, I, I want to talk about something specific that, that you've written in this uh, um, about Kerner. You note that the Kerner report tells us, quote, police are not merely the spark. And then you say that they are part of the broader set of institutional relationships that enforce and recreate racial inequality. I feel like this is one of the most critical flashpoints in the conversation that we're having um, about race and inequality in America today. And I want to give you a chance to, to expand on that. Why do you feel that police are not merely the spark, but are part of the, the, the broader context that causes all of this inequality? You know, I interviewed Raz Baraka, who was the mayor of Newark, mm -hmm. um, last summer, you know, in the aftermath of George Floyd's death. And he is he has a particular relationship to that city in that, you know, he's the son of the great poet and activist Amiri Baraka. Mm -hmm. um, but more uh, significantly, his father was nearly beaten to death in you know, the course of the Newark uprisings of 1967, which happened uh, just in Newark and Detroit were just a few weeks apart in the, the summer of that year. And so, um, you know, he had a very personal vantage point on policing and its connection to these sorts of, um, these sorts of issues. And he said something I thought was really profound and I think answers that question better than I could. Mm -hmm. And so he said, we can talk about the police and policing, but every year I have more black people who die in the hospital because of maternal mortality than I have who are killed by the police. And he said the police have the same values as every other institution in America. They just have guns. Mm. And I think that that is, you know, what happens because of all the institutions in which there are disparities, which is every major American institution, disparities in which they, the ways in which they carry out their responsibilities, uh, which correlate to, to race, the police are the only ones that physically touch you. That's the right, only ones that have right. physical contact with you. Uh, and so the violence of poor housing and of low quality education, uh, the violence of, of in the inability to access quality health care, uh, all of those things are abstract. But the actual violence that we see in the relationship with the police, that is concrete. Yeah. And I think that is why we see uh, all of these, these situations so easily mischaracterized as problems of police community relations, where they're really problems of people's relationship to a broader set of American institutions overall. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue this really 
wonderful conversation with uh, Jelani Cobb of The New Yorker. And we're also going to get to you, the listeners, uh, both on the phones and through social media. Ed in Detroit, uh, Ed in Gross Point, Mark in Redford Township, and Jerry in Detroit. Uh, we'll hear from you next if you want to join them, as always. Uh, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter and put comments there. we got a number of social media comments uh, as well that I want to inject into the conversation here. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest this hour is Jelani Cobb. He's a staff writer for The New Yorker, also a professor of journalism at Columbia University, and the editor of a new re-examination of the Kerner Commission report called the Essential Kerner Commission Report. Uh, Jelani has also written uh, an introduction uh, to that book, uh, we're talking about how similar the circumstances uh, that produced the Kerner Commission report in the late 1960s are to the things that we deal with today in 2021. Uh, all of the uh, indicators that suggest America is still struggling with this idea of being two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal as the Kerner Commission report uh, warned. Uh, we want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Give us a call at 313-577-1019 to tell us what you make of where we are uh, and what direction we're headed when it comes to racial justice and injustice uh, in 2021. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, and we'll work you into the conversation uh, let's get to the phones here. Uh, let's start with Jerry in Detroit. Jerry, welcome to the show. Um, good morning, Stevenson and Jelani. Hey, how are you? Thank you. All right. Um, I have um, two questions to ask um, Mr. Cobb. Um, first, um, uh, does he think um, that that a lot of the um, the urban um, rebellions of the 1960s were um, was sparked in large part due to the actions of white racist law enforcement. And also, um, um, do you think there are still white people out there who, um, who, um, who hate, who hate African-Americans, but yet deny being racists? Um, um, what I've been listening to, especially on right wing media, whenever the issue is brought up is that, um, you know, a lot of white people will deny to the hilt, you know, about, about, having um, ill wills towards people who aren't like them, whose skin color isn't white like theirs. And um, um, there seems to be this, um, this, this um, deep-seated denial amongst um, most white people, and I wonder um, what's your take on that. Mm. Uh, Jerry, really appreciate the call and the very 
They're very thoughtful uh, questions. Uh, Jelani, uh, go ahead and answer. Uh, sure. I think that one of the reasons that the Kerner report was so shocking uh, was the fact that it called white people on racism. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it's important to remember that this commission was composed of 11 people, nine of whom were white. Um, and then, you know, the two people who were uh, people of color, two African-American men, were Senator Edward Brooke, who was, uh, by any stretch of, you know, any definition of moderate on these issues, and Roy Wilkins, who was the uh, executive secretary of the NAACP. And I think the thought was that the two of them would balance each other out. Uh, but uh, the consensus of this was driven by uh, white people. Uh, and so when the report says that uh, things that white people uh, seldom note, but the Negro, as the term was at that time, the Negro can never forget, is that white society is deeply implicated in the creation of the ghetto. And I said it condoned it and its decisions created it and, uh, it and continue to maintain it. And so they placed the responsibility for the situation directly at the doorstep of white America, which runs into the idea of what you're saying about denial, uh, because there's always been a need uh, to, if I can delve into history a bit, mm -hmm. a need to project a face uh, of, of innocence and democracy is, is particularly abroad, uh, despite the racial contradictions of, of at home. Uh, that was one reason why in 1850, the United States abolished uh, the selling of slaves in Washington, D.C. Uh, and you know why Washington, D.C.? Well, specifically, they were embarrassed uh, to be referring to themselves as the standard bearer of democracy uh, but foreign diplomats could come to the nation's capital and watch human beings be sold. Uh, and so it was precisely because there were uh, other eyes that could witness American hypocrisy that this uh, this policy was changed. And so, uh, yes, to your question, and, and to answer the other question, yeah, I do believe there's still people who hate Black people. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I think about the matter of them denying it, you know, possibly, but I think the, the thing that has been uh, one of the most significant factors at least as far as race is concerned in the past decade, uh, has been people being increasingly overt and increasingly comfortable about admitting uh, their contempt for various communities, whether they be immigrants, uh, Muslims, Latinos, uh, Black people, uh, or, you know, pick the, the category that you despise. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of it as well. Yeah. So, so, you know, one of the things that I struggle with when we talk about the way that, uh, you know, Ordinary Americans, ordinary just white Americans might think about African Americans or uh, Latinos or, or or people who come here from the Middle East. You know, I, I, historically, I think there has been this thought that uh, if you could make the law uh, neutral and and uh, make it so that it errs on the side of, of racial justice, that it would matter less what. Uh, individual Americans might think about uh, uh, about a class of people. In other words, that if you could cure uh, what originally ailed uh, the republic, which was which was structural inequality that was kind of baked into everything, uh, that 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 you could you could pass for a country that that uh, that um, that respected equality. And I guess I'd, I I'm not sure I believe that anymore. Um, 
I'm not sure I buy that uh, we don't have to change minds as well as the law. And I think that's a really difficult, that's a really difficult concept to struggle with because uh, how you do that, I think, is still a huge question mark uh, in this country. And so I wonder what you make of that. How important is it, for instance, that there are still people who don't like African-Americans or don't respect uh, uh, minority, uh, you know, demographically minority populations in our country? So, I mean, I think I agree with you. You know, at one point, I was very dismissive of the hearts and minds kinds of arguments. Um, and I was more concerned with policy and or solely concerned with policy. Mm-hmm. But what a closer inspection over years has shown me is that absent some change in culture and broader sentiments, that kind of racial contempt influences how policy is enacted, irrespective of what your uh, objectives are. And so uh, we can look at laws that have the, the intention of creating some sort of equality, um, but people will find ways to circumvent them mm-hmm. uh, or, or use them or utilize them to the benefit of people of other communities. Uh, as opposed to the communities that have been uh, disparaged and deprived. And so I, I think that it has to be both of those things, but it is a very difficult thing to do. Uh, if it was simple, we would have done it already. Uh, and you know, one of the best examples, and I give this to my students all the time, is that we have a whole raft of uh, seemingly neutral laws on the books, or laws that could be passed, or passed off as neutral, uh, that have profound racial implications. Uh, We saw that with Trayvon Martin and Stand Your Ground Mm -hmm. uh, when they did the statistical analysis of it and saw that Stand Your Ground, in in effect, is a law that only works for white people. Uh, That when black people tried to avail themselves of Stand Your Ground defenses, uh, juries generally rejected them. Mm. Uh, And so we can have all the policies uh, about prosecution of police uh, for... uh, criminal misconduct or or uh, excessive use of force or any of the things that we have been talking about, uh, you know, in the past decade uh, as it relates to policing. But unless you have grand juries that are willing to hand down indictments, those laws don't matter. And so it's a complicated riddle. It's an enigma. And we're trying to figure it out as we have been uh, throughout the course of our history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, uh, Jerry, really appreciate the call and the the very thoughtful questions. Uh, let's go to Ed in Detroit. Ed, what's on your mind? Excellent conversation. Thank you. When I was born, Detroit was 80 plus percent white. Today it's 80 plus percent black. Mm-hmm. I've shown photos, Christmas season photos, crowds on Woodward Avenue in front of the J.O. Hudson Company store to relatives and students, they are shocked when they see maybe one or two black people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it reinforces the point you made earlier that too many people today, both white and black, Detroit is a black city and always has been, not realizing that you know it was an overwhelmingly black city until the 1970s, really. Uh, although at the elementary school level, it became black sometime in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. I want to, though, ask your guests to reach back into history 
and examine the change in attitudes and behaviors starting in 48 in the Democratic Party with the Humphrey's speech at the 48 convention, and even amongst the National Democratic Party, let's emphasize that, and even amongst some Republicans like Rockefeller and Milliken here in Michigan, changes in attitudes and behavior on race as it's connected to the Cold War. Oh, Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, Ed, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) So that is a very good question. I will go off and write a book to explain my answer to it and come back. I mean, that's a huge question. Um, but the short answer of it is, is I think that he's absolutely right in terms of those changes that become apparent uh, in 1948. Uh, really, I would say between 1948 and 1964, mm-hmm. uh, we get the, the tenor of modern politics as it relates to race, uh, you know, not only coinciding with that realignment in which Southern whites, uh, you know, by and large abandoned the Democratic Party, and the Democratic Party realizes that the future lies in African Americans in the North, uh, but you know the GOP increase, increasingly becomes uh, Southernized. Uh, and to go back in and read the correspondence of uh, people like Governor Rockefeller uh, or Governor Romney uh, in Michigan, uh, or even at this point, if you, you if you want a really quick laugh, Richard Nixon in 1964. They were all alarmed about the racial direction that the Republican Party had taken. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they they saw you know where things and, and at this point Nixon, of course, was considered moderate. Uh, you know, Reagan articulated similar similar kinds of um, points about the GOP uh, at that point, uh, and they were, of course, referring to uh, Barry Goldwater yeah. in that moment. Yeah. Uh, and then you know, in 1948, we have uh, you know the Dixiecrats. Uh, you know, who split off from the Democratic Party and essentially outline, you know, the future of you know what the Republican Party uh, does. You know, the places where the Dixiecrats were strong uh, wind up becoming Republican thresholds, I mean, uh, footholds uh, over the course of time. Uh, and, you know, on, on the other side of it, you know, the Democrats, uh, the mainstream Democrats and, you know, the Truman Democrats are trying to uh, position themselves in such a way that's palatable uh, for, uh, you know, their mainstream white voters while they are trying to attract uh, civil rights-oriented Black people. Which is one of the interesting points is that in 1952 or 56, I uh, forget which one it was, uh, the Democrats attempted to kind of play the field by pairing Adlai Stevenson, the uh, Northern liberal, with John Sparkman, who was the segregationist senator from Alabama. Mm. So it's literally a pro and anti-civil rights ticket. Uh, and and I think points to just the level of confusion there was in that transitional period uh, before we got to the mid-60s and things really took the tenor that they did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Ed, uh, really appreciate the call uh, and the provocative question. Uh, let's quickly go to Martha in Ortonville. Martha, what's on your mind? Hello. Um, good morning. Mm-hmm. Um, you were asking, how is this going to change? And the problem that I see is I don't see it changing because the people that hurt people and intentionally hold people down, they know exactly what they're doing and they're proud of what they're doing. Mm. And I don't know how it can change until 
that lack of pride in what they're doing is somehow removed. Mm. Uh, I, I absolutely uh, agree with you, Martha, and uh, you know that that's one of the real challenges I think we face uh, right now. Jelani, we were talking about how hard it is to change people's minds, but but talk a little about uh, this moment in American politics where it's not just. I think sort of the normal times when uh, it, it may be difficult to convince people of the value of, of racial equality, but where you have absolute cover uh, in some cases for overt racism in a way that we haven't seen in a really long time. I and mean, there's something about now that changes that conversation, I think. You know, I think that there's something, I mean, obviously this is connected to the politics of the 2016 election and who won it. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think that uh, there's a way of looking at that that actually gets back to the issue that we were talking about with Detroit um, and Baltimore and other places that had uh, kind of rapid flashover from being mostly white uh, to being mostly black or mostly people of color. Uh, but, you know, I'm from Queens, New York. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Queens is important uh, for a number of reasons, but, you know, most notably, it is statistically the most diverse county in the United States. Hmm. More languages uh, spoken there for per square mile than anywhere else uh, in the United States. And, and it's one of the most diverse counties in the world. Uh, and that's not by accident. The 1965 Immigration Reform Act uh, took place and Queens was one of the first places that began to change. The, the liberalization of American immigration was first witnessed in these places. Uh, but prior to 1965, Queens had been the second whitest borough of New York City. And it, within a decade, you began to see just an astounding number of ethnicities that were finding community and uh, employment and you know, building mosques and you know, houses of worship and restaurants that you know, catered to their uh, cultural cuisine and, and all these different kinds of things that we think of as hallmarks of diversity. Mm -hmm. uh, but for the, the generation that lived there when it was a mostly white enclave, uh, there was very much a circle the wagons mentality. Uh, and you know, the, that generation was Donald Trump's generation. Uh, he is also from Queens. And so consequently, the Queens, I'm a generation younger than him, the Queens that he knew and the Queens that I knew were two completely different places. And there was a set of people who never reconciled themselves to how quickly this community became diversified. And we've seen that dynamic take place again and again and again. Uh, and so we've seen nationally uh, in you know, 2016 to now, uh, the sorts of dynamics that were very visible in Queens in the 1960s, 1970s, uh, as you saw a, in sometimes violent reaction uh, to the influx of new immigrants from you know, various corners of the globe. Uh, and so it's really a microcosm of this. And I think that that gets to the heart of the issue the caller mentioned, uh, why we've seen this kind of pride. People feel that they're taking back something that's been taken from them. Uh, you know, there's a sense of indebted and of, of entitlement, uh, and uh, that drives a kind, of, uh, I think, uh, an esprit de corps uh, that has taken root. You know, and if we look at the the Trump era, which is punctuated uh, at the beginning by the 
University of Virginia uh, uh, attacks in Charlottesville mm-hmm. uh, and at the end, the January 6th attack. Uh, and so those are two kind of bookends that clearly identify the era that we were operating in. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, we need to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Jelani Cobb. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. Uh, Ed in Gross Point, Mark in Redford Township. We will get to you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is always the number here on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Now, an update from WDET General Manager, Mary Zatina. Our summer has been a bit like yours, wet. WDET suffered severe damage in the late June storm. Wayne State University dried us out and is restoring our facility one soggy wall at a time. We lost some historic memorabilia and her central air. It's hot. We have bad hair days, but thank God it's radio. The WDET team remains on the air with only our spirits slightly dampened. We launched the Constitution Book Club, the Artist Next Door Project, an online guide to summer fun, and a voter's guide. And for the first time in a long time, you joined us at some fun events. Our news team has not wavered, bringing you the news no matter what. And the new transmitter is on the way. We are diligent. We are resilient. WDET is here for you. And thanks to your generosity, we always will be. This is Detroit Today, and my guest is Jelani Cobb, staff writer for The New Yorker, professor of journalism at Columbia University, and the editor of a new look at the Kerner Commission report called The Essential Kerner Commission report. We're talking about uh, how much the echoes of what that report warned us about in the late 1960s uh, are present with us today in 2021, how they shape so much of the conversation about uh, race and racial injustice, uh, the ways in which uh, we have not moved past that warning that was in the Kerner Commission report about becoming a society that is divided uh, Two Americas, one black, one white, uh, both unequal uh, and separate. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Jelani, before we get back to the phones, I, I think I would be remiss if I didn't bring up in this conversation uh, what we saw happen on January 6th. Uh, in, in, in Washington, um, I, I feel like uh, there's a direct line between the backlash to racial justice efforts in the wake of George Floyd's death and this violent mob that attempted to, number one, murder members of Congress, but, but, but also uh, overthrow um, the electoral uh, process. Uh, how do we put that in the context of what the Kerner Commission was telling us 53 years ago. I mean, the Kerner Commission, you know, really kind of laid it out. And they said we were in danger of becoming, uh, you know, two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. Uh, And they point to the things they think need to be done in order to prevent that from happening. 
uh, and you know there are massive reforms uh, that go in a lot of different directions. You know, one of which is around law enforcement. Uh, they believe that law enforcement uh, should be integrated. Uh, that law enforcement, which you know by and large police forces were not, mm-hmm. uh, they believe that law enforcement had to be trained, uh, retrained. Uh, not all their recommendations hold up. You know, one of the things that they said was that they thought uh, police should use tear gas, uh, which at that point was a kind of novel uh, application. Uh, they thought they should use tear gas rather than uh, firing bullets at people. And now, you know, there's been a great deal of activism around uh, the use of tear gas and, you know, it's uh, uh, long-term um, health implications for people and so on. And so, uh, you know, but they do think that, you know, policing has to change uh, in some ways because they see it as a, a kind of closed institution. Uh, I think it's not unrelated to the fact that there were a significant number of law enforcement officers in that crowd uh, that was attacking the Capitol Police, uh, that you can kind of draw a line, you know, from what Kerner understood, what the Kerner Commission understood about policing and uh, the kind of right-wing uh, cloistered bunker mentality uh, that we've seen taken, taking root that allows people to believe that in the name of law enforcement, you can storm Congress and threaten the lives of members of Congress uh, in, in attempting to reinstall a president who's actually lost an election. Hmm. So I, I don't think that those things are shocking. Uh, one, one thing that I will say, not everything about the commission report uh, is, nor could, it, nor could it possibly be, but not everything is uh, relevant to the present or not everything ages well. So one of the more notable footnotes that I came across when I was you know, reading the report or rereading the report uh, was a note of gratitude they expressed to an L.A. police officer uh, who they had interviewed and who had given them uh, really significant insights into policing during riots and community control and how policing could you know be reformed and, and so on. And uh, that police officer, I believe was a captain at the time, uh, was named Daryl Gates. For people who are yes. too young or don't recall <laughs> where they've heard Daryl Gates' name, uh, he became uh, the notorious chief of the LAPD uh, who oversaw you know, one of the most you know, racially tense and inflammatory periods in LAPD history, culminating in the beating of Rodney King and the uprisings that happened as a response to those officers being acquitted. Uh, and so... Uh, to say that, you know, Daryl Gates was the person who gave you insight yeah. into preventing riots uh, is a kind of dark note of irony. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Mark in Redford Township. Mark, welcome to the show. Stephen, good morning. Hi. Good morning, Jolani. I hope things are going better for you in New York. Thank you. We're, we're a tough breed here. We'll get through it. <laughs> yeah, good. Um, what I wanted to talk about was uh, I studied the uh, Johnson administration in, in college and his subsequent uh, Great Society reforms agenda. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in writing a couple papers on that subject, I looked at uh, Father William Cunningham, who founded Focus Hope here in Detroit with uh, Eleanor Josias, mm-hmm. and subsequently assumed the mantle of leadership 
that the Great Society of Reforms had not manifested. And I was wondering if Jelani could comment on whether he heard of any correspondence between Father Cunningham and LBJ uh, during his presidency. Hmm. That's an interesting question, uh, Mark, and I'll, I'll give Jelani a chance to, to answer, but I also just want to kind of point out in, in broader terms what you're talking about is really symbolic, I think, of what happened to uh, the, the idea of the Great Society is that, uh, you know, government attempted some of those things early on, but they got pushed uh, outside of government to, you know, the nonprofit space, to the private sector. And I, I've always thought that that's one of the reasons that it wasn't more effective in eliminating the deficits that uh, that he was he was aiming at, but 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 Jelani, go ahead and and talk. I'm not sure if you're even familiar with Father Cunningham and Focus Hope here in Detroit. No, I'm not. Um, but and I don't know about this correspondence. Uh, you know, but I, I concur. Uh, one of the reasons that LBJ was interested in this in the first place was the fact that they were uh, heavily involved in the Great Society programs mm-hmm. at, as these uprisings were happening. And so it was almost a sense of exasperation. You know, when I talked with um, the Senator Fred Harris, who's the last surviving member of the Kerner Commission, uh, he's 90 years old and a former senator from Oklahoma. Uh, he said that, uh, that LBJ was really kind of at his wit's end, you know, trying to understand uh, how they had enacted these uh, historic reforms, but they didn't have, they didn't seem to have been able to stem the tide of anger uh, and, you know, this kind of cup of outrage that was running over. Uh, and so that was part of what was happening there. And so one one last thing that I'll say about this is that uh, we see, you know, the kind of Kerner Commission in one light uh, because it came out a month before Martin Luther King's assassination, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is something people have tended to conflate. Uh, people thought that the Kerner Commission was writing about what happened after King's assassination, where there were uh, uprisings in hundreds of American cities, but that's not actually it. Uh, and they were attempting to analyze the past, the recent past, and that was 1964, 1965, 1966, etc. But the real value of this report was almost predictive when we look at 1980 yeah. and uh, the Arthur McDuffie riots in Miami. Yes. There was a motorcyclist who was beaten to death. Uh, or Malise Green, Detroit, yep. Rodney King, Michael Brown. You can see just how important their report was and how important it remains. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Jelani Cobb of The New Yorker was really, really great to have you here with us. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about the lack of action on the part of the Supreme Court in reaction to this really extreme new abortion law in Texas. This is 1019 WDTFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.